want to start this morning with a deeply, deeply philosophical question. Are you ready? Prepare. Prepare to put your thinking caps on. If a tree falls in the forest and there is no one around, does it make a sound? Now that, that idea, that thought has plagued philosophers for, for many centuries. I think the only one that has plagued them more is the similar question if a tree falls in the forest and the wife isn't around to hear it, is it still the husband's fault? Um, no, I'm kidding. That was terrible. That's terrible for two reasons. Husbands, one, because most of the time it is your fault. Let's be honest. I say that as a husband. And number two, of course, because that kind of critical spirit is poking fun at is not present at all here among our wonderful ladies at Straight Gate. So scratch that. Now, if you just think about the first question of those philosophically, you would actually hear people say two different things. They would say, it depends. Now, here's what the, why they say it depends. Because if you were simply looking at it as a matter of a physical phenomenon, in other words, when a tree falls in the forest, are sound waves emitted out into the atmosphere that could be heard? The answer is, yes, it does make a sound. And yet if you are using the word sound in the way that we perceive it, human perception, human reality, what is the only way that we perceive sound? Because God has exquisitely made ears to take sound waves that your body may not feel. It may have no other capability of receiving other than through the ear and it goes to a nerve sensor in your brain and it registers that sound. Now, in that sense, a philosopher would say, if you're talking about it not purely as a physical phenomenon, if you're talking about it as a human perception, if a tree falls in the forest and those sound waves go off into the atmosphere without ever rattling someone's eardrum and going to the nerve centers of their brain and registering as, as sound, has it created a sound? Some people would say, in that perception, in that perspective, no. Now, I'm really not going to preach a sermon to you about the philosophical connotations of that idea. I, I'm, I do want to talk to you about this. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, asks a really interesting and important question. No, not whether if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Look at what he says in verse number six. He says, now brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues... What shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. Paul's question is this. If you speak words that are not understood by the hearer, have you benefited them at all? Now, there is no philosophical debate about this question. The answer simply, as Paul makes clear, is no. That's a rhetorical question. What shall it profit you? The answer is, it will profit you none. It will be useless if I am speaking words that you don't understand. You say, okay, I'm with you this far. What does this have to do with 
anything. Let's rewind two weeks. We started two weeks ago by focusing on drawing a broader principle out of 1 Corinthians 14, pushing some of the difficult questions to one side, promising to come back to those in our preaching, and simply tried to draw this principle. If you are choosing, as Paul makes clear, between two spiritual gifts, prophecy and speaking in tongues... As we understood from this passage, Paul makes clear, prophesying edifies and builds up other people. Tongues, in the way that Paul is describing it here, edifies only yourself. It does not edify other people because they don't understand what you're saying. If you are choosing between those two spiritual gifts, Paul says, prophecy is the better one. In the context of the local church. And the principle we gleaned out of that is a biblical one. If you have the choice between edifying someone else or edifying yourself, building up yourself, choose to edify others instead of yourself. And we saw, I think, how practical this is for your daily life. I, over and over in the use of my time, can either prioritize my hobbies and the things that build me up and encourage me and, and, and relax me, or I can say, you know what, I've got a wife and I've got a children, and children, I'm going to, to devote myself to building them up. Now, I'm not intending to suggest that rest isn't important or that there is no place in our lives for a hobby or, or a diversion. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to say that. I am trying to say, what is our thought process? Are we walking the path of love that is continually looking to build up others as Jesus did? Coming to be not served, but serving. This is the more excellent way of love. And we talked about Paul's conclusion here in verse number 12. Seek that ye may excel to the edifying or the building up of the church. I want this morning to try to glean another principle from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Again, putting some of the difficult questions aside, which we will turn, begin turning to this evening. To focus on this particular question. If... You speak a word that is not understood by the listener. Does it profit anyone? The title of the message this morning is The Language of Love. The Language of Love. And I want to assess this morning how you and I are using our language in our daily life. How we are communicating words in our daily life. Whether we are focused on edifying ourselves or whether we are focused in being understood by others and therefore in edifying them. Let's start, first of all, with a problem. A problem that Paul is identifying. And I urge you to have your Bibles open, if you have them with me, uh, uh, and to verse number 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul says, Now, brethren... If I come unto you speaking with tongues, and again, as just a general definition, we said that this idea of speaking with tongues is speaking in a language that you have never learned, miraculously gifted by God to speak in a language you have never learned. We'll be getting into that a little bit more tonight. Notice what he says, what shall I profit you? What good is it except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? Now stop there for just a moment. 
Paul is putting himself as the speaker. He is saying, as the, as the inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, if I come to you, the dominant figure in the early church, in its missionary endeavors, he said, if I come to you and I speak with tongues, it's not going to do anything unless you understand. That's his point. And notice now the examples that he gives of this problem in the illustrations he provides. Go to verse number seven. He says, this isn't anything strange. He says, even things without life giving sound. Now, in other words, he's talking about inanimate objects, not living objects. He's saying even even non-living things whether pipe or harp, musical instruments, for example, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? You say, what's the idea here? Well, think for a moment of uh, a friend that some of us, a mutual friend that some of us know. This brother and friend has lost hearing. And he has written about going to a concert and not being able to hear anything. He can hear just a mass, a wall of just annoyance. He can't distinguish between any of the sounds. Can you imagine if that were your experience? You wouldn't be able to tell pitches. You wouldn't be able to tell musical notes. Imagine if that were the note, the musical instrument itself. You would have no distinction. It would make no profit to you. Notice what he says in verse 8. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? Now we see in our Old Testament over and over again, different examples where the children of Israel would blow a trumpet. They would blow the shofar, something our brother Johnny knows a little bit about and appreciates, I know. They would blow the shofar. And what would happen? They would say, oh, There's the trumpet. It's time for war. In fact, Amos 3 says this. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? It was an alarm. Now, we don't have that to the same extent anymore, but perhaps you grew up in a time in which there were bomb sirens that might go off that would require people to go underground and take shelter. Even here today, every the first Wednesday of every month at 1 p.m., what happens? Tornado sirens go off. Can you imagine the confusion? If not on the first Wednesday of a month at 1 p.m., you heard some sound coming from City Hall or wherever that that siren is, and it didn't sound anything like the sirens that you hear there, you would stop and you would say, you might come out into your yard and talk to your neighbor. What is that? Is that telling us we need to go downstairs? We need to go find shelter? What is that sound? I don't recognize it. That's what he's saying. If a sound doesn't give distinction, it's not going to send and communicate the message. Notice also what he says. Verse number nine, he says, So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. See the idea. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? If you speak words that no one understands, you're just speaking into the air. And sound waves are going out, but they're not doing anything. They're not profiting at all. I had a personal example of this. I went to school in North Carolina, and in my freshman dorm, we had a wonderful housekeeper. The sweetest woman, one of the sweetest women I've ever met. She was, uh, she was an African-American woman with a deep Southern African-American accent. 
And here I was, the whitest Yankee that ever stepped foot on that campus, coming down there. And I still remember I'd walk into my dorm after class, and this sweet woman would look at me, and she'd smile at me, and she'd say something. And I would stare at her with the most, with the most idiotic bovine stare. Huh? And then I could tell she was asking me a question or she was making some statement. And I didn't want to look like an idiot by saying, what? No, sorry. What did you say? I can't understand. It literally was, it was Latin to me. And so then eventually I, I would say, oh, oh, yeah. And she'd say, no. And so then what I would say. Oh, oh, interesting. No. And she'd be asking me like what the weather was outside. And I'm looking at her like an idiot saying, oh, yeah, yeah, interesting. She must have thought, man, the, um, the academic standards at this institution have slipped significantly. Uh, what was that? She was speaking, but I couldn't understand. It wasn't profiting me at all. Paul's simply making this point. Well, then go along to his point about worship. Go down to verse number 16. He says, else, when thou shalt bless with the Spirit. Again, he has the idea here of speaking in tongues. How shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned, someone who does not understand what you're saying, how will they say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? Now, friends, do you know our practice of saying amen at the end of someone's prayer is ancient? It is biblical? This practice of saying amen is simply saying, I agree. We don't have to use the word amen. You could simply say after someone prays, that's right, I agree. Yes, me too. Paul expected that when the people of God would come together and someone says something or someone prays something, the brothers and sisters around would say, yep, God, me too. Amen. Paul says, if you don't understand what's been said, how are you going to understand If someone were to get up here and start speaking in Latin or at our prayer meeting on Wednesday night, someone were to give a beautiful, lovely prayer in Latin, how could any of us say amen? That's the simple point. Here's the problem. Sounds that don't make sense to the listener are useless. So secondly, what's the principle? What is the principle? Again, the principle that Paul is gleaning for us here is that love speaks in words the listener will understand. You say, why do you say love will speak in words the listener will understand? Because this, let's think of the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is saying what? Spiritual gifts. There's an entire potpourri. There's a great variety of spiritual gifts that God has given in the life of the church. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, but... I need to show you a more excellent way better than even the most excellent of spiritual gifts. Why? Because without the more excellent way of love that all of us are walking, your spiritual gifts will be useless. They will be without any profit. You need to get love as the foundation before you are really advancing in your use of spiritual gifts. And now Paul comes back to 1 Corinthians 14, and now he's going to apply the more excellent way of love to two specific spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues. He has now laid the groundwork. He has set out the road ahead of them, and he said, now I'm going to apply what I've just said. 
1 Corinthians 14 is showing us how we apply the more excellent way of love to interacting with one another in the body of Christ. And we've already looked at one principle that's gleaned from that. If you have a choice to edify others or edify yourself, choose to edify others. That's what love does. Now, the more excellent way of love chooses to speak words that others understand and to avoid words that will simply be speaking into the air no matter how satisfying or no matter how understandable to the speaker here's the simple conclusion that paul is drawing from first corinthians chapter 14 if you want to build up someone else they have to understand what you're saying and if you love them you will seek to edify them. Therefore, therefore, if we were just drawing the logical syllogism, you would say, if you love them, you will speak in words that they understand. There's a problem. There's a principle. Speak in words that people understand. So third, what is the practice? What is the practice? Well, let's, let's start in Corinth. What is the practice that Paul commanded of them in their local church assemblies? What is the point that Paul is driving to when he compares prophecy and tongue speaking? One of which people will be edified and encouraged. One of which they will not understand and will just be speaking into the air. What does he say? Notice the specific command he gives. Verse 13. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. Hmm. Now, why would that satisfy Paul's principle here? Because if you interpret what has been said, now everyone understands. And now everyone can receive profit. Go on to verse number 28. He says, but if there be no interpreter... Let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. You see that? If you can speak in ways that others understand, you may do so. But if you may not, if you cannot speak in ways that others understand, do not speak. That is Paul's command. That is a key point that he is driving to in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, here's my question. Is this a principle that applies only to 1 Corinthians 14 or the context of the Corinthian church and tongue speaking? Is this only something, okay, Paul, we get what you're driving at there, and I guess I don't see a lot of people at Straight Gate Church getting up and talking in languages that no one understands. I guess we're fine there. We can put that passage aside and move on with our lives. My answer, you'll be surprised to hear, is no. I think this gives us a principle that is phenomenally important in every single one of our daily lives. Because I want to suggest to you today that each one of us has not only the capacity, but also the choice every day to either speak to others in the ways that are natural and familiar and comfortable and understandable to me, or I will choose to 
to speak to others in ways that I, by the sensitivity given to me by the Spirit of God and the love that I have for them, in ways that are comfortable, familiar, understandable, and edifying to them, even if not to me. Now you say, where else do you have biblical warrant for this idea? Are you drawing this principle from anywhere other than 1 Corinthians 14? And the answer is yes. Make a note of Colossians 4, verse 6. You can turn there if you want to do a sword drill this morning, but I'll read it for you if you don't. Colossians 4, 6. Listen to what Paul says here. Let your speech be always, always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. What do you think it means for your words to be with grace always, always with grace? Think of a person that you would describe to someone else as gracious. Gracious. That is a gracious woman. That is a gracious man. That is a gracious person right there. Do you have a picture of someone in your mind? You would say, that's someone who's gracious. What characterizes someone who is gracious? If you looked it up in the dictionary, you'd almost certainly find this word connected to it, courteous. Have you ever thought about what courtesy really is? Oh, I'm sorry. You go. Courteous. Gentle. Gracious. For our words always to be with grace is that they come carry with them a kind of gracious courtesy that is not self-focused, but is others-focused. That is, in my belief, what a key part of letting your speech be always with grace. He says seasoned with salt. You say, what does salt do? I'll never forget going to a cooking class with Tabitha as a little date idea that we had. We went to a series of cooking classes and we were making pasta. And the, the chef who was teaching the class literally just takes a huge, just this thing of salt. And he just starts literally pouring it in to the pasta. And it was like, that is obscene. And what he told us is basically for food to taste good, you need fat and you need salt and you need a lot of it. Well, I mean, that was just, that was... <laughs> Yes. Eat the fat and drink the sweet, right? Amen. That's a, that's a life verse over here. No, but, but what does salt do? It adds life. It adds vitality. It adds energy to the food that you're making. What do you think Paul is trying to say when he says your words should be seasoned with salt? They should have life. They should have vitality. They should have a kind of wit. Don't get that the wrong way. Not like you're a comedian. But I mean, your words are alive, they're not dead. Why? Because you want to be seen as hilarious? No. Paul says, so that you may know how to answer every person. Every person. Not just the one who naturally are on your bandwidth. The one who speak the same way that you did. In the same way of understanding. Paul says, I want you to be able to speak so everyone can hear and profit. How do you do that? You better learn to be courteous. You better learn to be gracious. You better learn so that your words can be seasoned with salt, be lively. You see, love speaks words that others understand more than whether just 
I do. Think about this beautiful picture from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10.21 says, The lips of the righteous feed many. It's like your words are a meal to someone who has an empty soul. How does that work? It means that you have an idea. You have a sensitivity to their taste. You have a sensitivity to their hunger, to their thirst. And you are giving them graciously words that will feed them. To edify, you must be understood. And love always wants to edify. Therefore, love always wants to be understood. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication, literally rotten communication, rotting communication proceed out of your mouth, but such as is good for the use of edifying, building up. That is our goal with all of our words, not just some of them. And friends, I just plead with you for just a moment. If your parents here today, the words that you use tearing down your children will have drastic negative consequences in your life, even if you don't see it immediately. Husbands and wives, the words that you use tearing down one another in your irritation or frustration will destroy your marriage eventually. There are some things that you just do not need to say. Never. You, you never need to say them. You never need to say words that tear down. You never need words. You never need to express words that will cut and wound. You need to express words that will build up. Does that involve sometimes God using your words for reproof, for correction? Of course, I don't mean that for a moment. I do mean let it always be for the purpose of building up and not tearing down. So what's Paul saying here? Paul's saying love focuses on using words that will be understood. And I want to be clear, this is not the fear of man. This is not saying, oh, I wonder how someone will respond to my gospel message, and so I'm going to water down the message, or I'm not going to give it at all, or I'm going to change the message to be palatable. That's not. That's fear of man. But friends, there's a real difference between fear of man and love of man. The fear of man seeks to change the message to make it palatable. The love of man seeks to calibrate the manner of the message in order that it might be understood. I'd like you at some point to compare how Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel in John chapter 3, and the way he speaks to a woman at a well one chapter later in John chapter 4. He uses very different pictures, very different means of speaking, very different theological concepts and depth of complexity to them. Why? Because Jesus' goal when he saw a seeker was, I want to be understood with the message that God has given me to come for them. So again, does this apply only to the circumstance at Corinth, to tongue speaking in a local church? No, I don't believe so. I believe this is a principle that will apply in all of our lives. So let's seek to make some biblical applications here for just a few minutes. The first is in our ministry. In our ministry, how will I speak the language of love in my ministry? Well, there's one important thing for me as a pastor. It doesn't matter whether I have the most eloquent message or a message that will help be held up as rhetorically sensible or pleasing to certain, uh, to certain people. It matters whether you understand what I'm saying. That's my job. 
and it should be all of our job when we are teachers to calibrate how we are speaking to whether our listeners will understand. You know, we have a wonderful example when we come back to in-person children's ministry next week for you who are teachers not to focus on giving words in your Sunday school lessons that are pleasing to yourself or witty to yourself, but words that are calibrated for children to understand. Have you ever seen someone who is wonderfully gifted with children and you've wondered, how are they so gifted with children? How do they do it? Do you know one thing I'll just, I'll just say honestly for some of those people that I know well? They're humble. They're humble. They're loving. Have you noticed about people who are wonderful with children, they don't care about humiliating themselves in the eyes of adults in order to minister and appeal to children and be understood by them? Do you know what that was required for that? Humility. To say, I'll look like a fool if I can reach this child in doing it. That's wonderful. There's something wonderful about that. And it's why as as Jesus looked at these children who were surrounding him and his disciples were saying, shoo them away. They're embarrassing us. They're distracting us. Jesus said, no, bring them to me. I'll take them. Next Sunday, for those of you who are called to minister to children, let your language be the language of love to be targeted at all costs, at all points to minister to them. Parents, you have the same responsibility. You have the responsibility to teach your children in the word of God. And that involves more than simply reading the Bible to them. Oh, oh, that is so critical. Your job is to bring it down to their level. To explain it to them. To teach it to them in words and examples and pictures that they understand. You say, that sounds like a lot of work. Yes, being a parent is a lot of work. It's a big responsibility. But God has called you to it. Don't speak over their heads. Bring it down to their level. We have a calling on this, not even in our ministry, just to children, but to others. There are people who come in these doors week after week that maybe are only going to come once. There are people in your work that, that are maybe interested in Christianity or maybe are not. Your choice is either going to use the language of love to speak in words they'll understand or be content simply to speak over their heads. Do you know how often we as Christians slip into a kind of Christianese That those who are new to the faith might have no idea what we're talking about? Have you ever thought of what someone would think who comes into our church for the first time if they were to hear us use a phrase like, washed in the blood? They would say, what on earth are you talking about? Or they come to a prayer meeting and someone talks about a, a hedge of thorns or a hedge of protection. I'm not saying it's wrong to use those phrases, not at all. I just mean, do we have the heart of being understood when we're being surrounded or when we're around or in communication with someone who doesn't have any understanding of what that phrase might mean. Even simple, basic, biblical phrases like being born again. Are we just casually using them as cliches? Or are we really seeking to bring understanding and life and vitality to these important biblical phrases? In our ministry, the language of love is to speak in ways that are targeted to being understood. And friends, if you want to know those who are most effective at evangelism, it is those who are in their daily lives always seeking out people to communicate gospel words in ways that are targeted for their listener to understand. Why? Because they've learned, and by the, by the influence of the Holy Spirit, their words are always with grace, and they are seasoned with salt. It is love, it is humility, it is selflessness. In your ministry, 
speak the language of love. But I want to end here with one more application. I want to speak about our relationships. Because I know of almost nothing more that will destroy your relationships, your marriages, your family relationships, your church relationships, and your friendships by being unwilling to speak the language of love. What do you mean? I mean that when two human beings are in relationship with one another, very often they are mismatched in how they speak and how they understand one another. And it can be over the simplest and most basic things. I'll give you an example. When Tabitha and I, this is an example I give almost every time I do premarital counseling. When Tabitha and I got married, it didn't take us long in our, in our marriage to realize we didn't understand what an argument was. This again, just a very somewhat simple idea. But one of us thought that an argument was when we were just speaking but disagreeing. We just having a, a, a speech. We just weren't quite on the same page. One of us thought, you know, an argument is when like you're yelling at each other and you're slamming doors and you're really angry. Now, is that a trivial idea? Yes. But can you understand why if I said we're having an argument and, and she said, no, we're not. And then suddenly we're not understanding each other. There's another example. It was, it was, it was so funny. We we're talking about a particular standard or conviction. And I personally, I have, I have a conviction against playing card games that are associated with gambling. I just, I say, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be a part of that which has ruined so many people. And we were talking about this, and for a long time we thought that we were in disagreement on this area of, of, of card playing. Until suddenly we started communicating about it in more depth, and we realized we actually agreed. We just simply had a different understanding of what each one's position was. Here, for years, to a married couple, had we thought we disagreed, but we simply hadn't understood. Friends, how many times in a marriage do our basic misunderstandings become, the ba- become a big issue over which we are so divided? How many times in our marriages are we tempted to say things like, you know, I've explained it to you so many times and you still haven't gotten it, I'm done. That's your problem. It's not mine. Is that the language of love? Or does the language of love say, if you don't understand me, that's my problem. That's not yours. I need to calibrate my words. I want to be understood. I want to communicate this idea of how I'm feeling or, or how that action you have affects me. I want to understand it. Let me, I, let me continue praying and seeking God how I can communicate this more effectively and clearly. A wonderful thing that would be for a husband and wife who devoted themselves to understanding each other. Do you know what that requires sometimes? I will say very honestly, there are times when I am speaking uh, with my wife in ways in which we disagree, and she's speaking, and I'm just listening, but I'm really thinking about what I'm going to say next. The humble way, the language of love is to say, no, I'm going to listen to understand And when I listen to understand and humble myself to understand, then I'm going to humble myself to communicate in ways that I hope you will understand. Speak the language of love with your spouse. Humble yourself, not to speak in ways that you understand and they're intelligible to you, but target your manner and mode of speaking to be able to communicate in ways that your spouse will understand. This goes even beyond words. 
Some of you no doubt have read the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Gary Chapman has really helped many Christian couples to understand that we communicate to each other in ways beyond just words. We experience love in different ways as spouses. He identifies five of them. Physical touch, acts of service, uh, gift giving. Uh, He also, let me get this, let me remind myself of this. Words of affirmation and quality time. If I am attempting to give love to my spouse in a way that she doesn't understand, we may have frustration because I say, I'm trying to love you, and she says, I don't feel loved, or vice versa. What does the language of love say? It says, I will try to give love to you in the way you understand, even if it feels foreign to me. Why? Because love wants and strives to be understood. And friends, we could take this same example and go down the list of our human relationships. Parents and children. Parents, are you speaking to your children? Loving your children? Disciplining your children? In the language that they understand? Or the language that you understand? Down the list. If we want to have healthy relationships in marriage, in family, in church, in friendship, in fellowship... What it's going to require is speaking the language of love that focuses not on what I understand, not on what is intelligible to me and comfortable and familiar to me, but what is understandable to the one who is listening. Friends, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears, does it make a sound? That's not too important a question. But what's a really important question is if you speak someone that the li- something that the listener doesn't understand, are they profited? The answer is no. To edify, you must be understood. And love always wants to edify. Therefore, love always seeks to be understood. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and how true and how helpful it is. We can glean principles from it that apply to every area of our life. And Father, would you humble us today where we need to be humbled How often pride hinders us in this way. We say, you failing to understand me is your problem, not mine. I've said it the best way that I can. Father, humble us. Humble us never to give up. Humble us to keep on communicating, to speak the language of love that seeks to be understood. Let's pause for a moment their heads bowed and ask the spirit to speak to us Jesus Christ came to speak to you in a language that you would be that you would understand that's why you are saved this morning because you heard him speaking and you understood and friend if you've never heard Jesus speaking to you if you've never understood him knocking on the door of your heart, if you've never opened the door to him, won't you listen for his words this morning? He wants a relationship with you. He wants to communicate with you as as his friend and as your savior. But also, friends, let's assess our own relationships. Spouses, do you speak the language of love? Or do you need to repent and humble yourself? Parents and children, 
teachers, evangelizers. May the Spirit equip us in this important task. Tim Holmquist, would you come close us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you that you talk to us in love. The love of the Father came through the Son. And we pray that you will give us the grace to speak your love to others that we're around and the wisdom to know what it is and the patience to keep on wanting to do the right thing and saying the right things. Lord, we pray that we will be more like you in what we say and do and think. And thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.